This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. We pray that we would hear your voice and respond. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you were here last week, you heard a rather memorable children's sermon from Father Frank Bernardi. If you weren't here, or you need a refresher, let me quickly rehearse what he did. He had all the kids stand on the lowest step of the chancel and then jump off. And he was like, was that fun? Yeah, it was fun. Then he puts a piano bench, and of course it was one upholstered with leather, much to the chagrin of our beloved music director, up on the top step of the chancel. And he had kids volunteer to jump off of it. And of course, my Flannery, being the daredevil that she is, volunteers immediately, jumps off, and her mom's like, oh, you know. But lots of kids did this. And of course, Frank then asked, which one was more fun, jumping off the bench or jumping off the chancel? And the kids answer that jumping off the bench was, of course, more fun. Why was it more fun? Because it was riskier. And riskier is more fun. And then he reminded us all that the Christian life involves some risk. Getting out of bed is risky. Going to school and going to work is risky. Prayer is risky. And of course, as Bilbo reminds Frodo at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, walking out your door at all is risky. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. In the course of our ordinary lives, however, God gives us these invitations, big and small, to take greater risks for him. And as Father Frank said, when we say yes to these, it's more fun. Now, he didn't mean fun in the ordinary sense of that word. To say yes to these riskier invitations involves suffering. Maybe it involves being afraid or uncomfortable or more tired. But it is more fun in the sense that our satisfaction, our sense of belonging to a good and a true and beautiful story is heightened. The world itself is transfigured for us. And we come to see it as alive with the presence of God and his angels. Did you listen to that passage from Revelation? The heavens are opened up and John sees this vision of what's going on behind the scenes, as it were. And the angels and the martyrs and the saints praising God. That's what's happening all around us all the time. And when we respond to these invitations, we get to see that too. We get to participate in that too. One of my favorite early theologians was a 4th century bishop named Hilary of Poitiers. And Hilary lived a beautiful life by consistently following the invitation to t- of God to take risks in relationship, to share the good news of Jesus, and to take care of the poor. And after a life of doing this, Hilary said, Everything that seems empty is filled with the angels of God, and there is no place that is not inhabited by them as they go about their ministry. His awareness and attunement to the presence of God and his holy angels was elevated and he came to see reality as it really is, filled with angels and charged with the presence of God. And I believe that the reason that God makes these riskier invitations to us, both as a community and as individuals, is that he wants to ennoble us by helping us to see our ordinary lives from a kingdom perspective. 
which is just to say to see them as God sees them. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote that it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as if you now meet, sorry, such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. And if life is that charged and that meaningful at all times, even if we do not have eyes to see it, then nothing we do during the course of our days is insignificant or merely ho-hum. Because as Lewis continues, all day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. And it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. This is the spirit within which Paul can say, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. When we live holy conventional lives, if we never say yes to these riskier invitations, it will be hard, if not impossible, for us to have that kingdom perspective on our lives. It is alarmingly easy to forget that our ordinary lives are part of a great and dangerous story. A story in which ordinary things like bread and wine and water and passing conversations are taken up into the story of God redeeming the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And it will always be true that no matter where you are or what you are doing or what vocation you have, a huge amount of your life will always be ordinary. Even if you set your life up to be more radical. Tish and I have this friend who was part of an university chapter as an undergrad, and he went on a mission trip to work with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta alongside of urban missionaries. And when he got there, he was just bowled over by the impact these missionaries were having on the lives of the poor. But after a month or so, he began to realize, like, these missionaries are pretty much doing the exact same thing that I do at home, and I'm struggling with all the same stuff I struggle with here that I struggle with at home. And the reason for that is as Mother Tish says, everyone wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. So much of life is ordinary, no matter what life you're living. And God prompts us and invites us to take risks for him so that we can know who we are and so that we can see the significance of what we're doing every day for the kingdom. These can be small risks, like following an internal prompting to probe more deeply in a conversation with a work colleague or reigning in spending so as to give sacrificially. Or the risks can be much bigger, like giving away your life in service to the poor or refugees, as so many saints have done over the centuries. Or it could be like St. Paul standing up in the synagogue, as he does in our passage from Acts today, when the elders ask, does anyone have a word of exhortation? And bearing witness to the Messiah, fully aware of the danger to his life in doing so. Now, friends... I want to tell you a story that made me so proud of our church. To me, this story signaled a real commitment in this body to answering the prompting of Jesus to take risks and relationship. So at the fish fry on the last Friday before Holy Week, I met someone who was there almost by accident. They weren't looking for a church, and they were there only because they knew someone who was involved in the ESL program. So I kind of, you know, exchanged pleasantries with this person like you do, and I wouldn't have gone much deeper than that. But I, before, I, before I knew it, 
several of the ESL volunteers had surrounded this person, and they were telling them about, hey, here's how you get involved in our church, and you should actually talk to Father Jonathan about community groups. And so, you know, before I knew it, I'm roped into this conversation, and they're they're saying to me, hey, can you introduce this person to our community groups? So I had, you know, a brief chat about community groups and where this person might fit in, and I asked them to meet up the next week for coffee. By the time I had gotten to that meeting the following week, this person had already had dinner with the community group and had had like 10 conversations with Ascensionites and been introduced to people that lived in their neighborhood. And in that meeting, I was utterly stunned by the relational generosity of this church. I was stunned by our willingness to take risks in relationship and to respond to those prompts. And hey, I just want to say this morning, if you volunteer for ESL or you're otherwise involved in our international ministry, can I just pause and say that what you're doing is beautiful? You are magnifying Christ. You are working for his greater glory in Pittsburgh. You are Christ's instruments to bring life to this world, and your risks and relationship are bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, just like Jesus says they will do in Matthew chapter 13. And friends, I could tell you so many more stories that have made me proud of you. I could tell you about the sponsors who took risks and relationship over the past six months, extending hospitality and prayer and friendships to people who were just coming to baptism in Jesus Christ. I could talk about risks that have been taken to create relationships across the generations and community groups. I've heard so many beautiful stories In our church, there is an embarrassment of riches, of good stories about the fruit you are bearing as you listen to the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd, and you respond to those invitations to take risk in relationship. I want you to know, as your pastor, just how proud I am of you. Jesus is doing good work through you. I'm absolutely floored by the palpable and evident work of the Holy Spirit that is happening in this place and in the body of Christ that is gathered here. Y'all have responded. And I pray that all of us would continue to respond to these risky invitations because we hear that voice of the Good Shepherd. We hear him calling and we long to respond to that voice. So today in our calendar, the fourth Sunday of Easter is known as Good Shepherd Sunday. And every Sunday, every, every year on this Sunday, we read some part of this powerful passage from the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. And in this passage, John is very straightforwardly telling us that Jesus is God incarnate. And he's doing that in the unique way that the New Testament does, by taking a title by which Yahweh made himself known among the Israelites and applying it to Jesus. In John, and in this passage in particular, this is particularly forceful. This passage comes in the middle of the so-called ego me or I am statements of Jesus. These attributions are not made by the gospel writer to Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is saying that about himself. What do we know about the good shepherd in Scripture? Through the prophets in the Old Testament, and especially Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, Israel is characterized as a flock, and its leaders are understood as shepherds. But the prophets are severely denunciatory about the shepherds of Israel. The word of the Lord that comes to Ezekiel says this, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds and you clothe yourselves with the wool and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. 
You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally instead. And because of that, the flock was scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. But God has compassion. He is against these shepherds and will remove them from the leadership of the flock. And the Lord says, I myself will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food from them. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As the shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. And so when Jesus says that he is a good shepherd, he is saying he fulfills this theme in the Old Testament. And of course, remember the parables that he tells. He is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He gathers the strays. He gives up his life on behalf of his people. He feeds his people. No one takes his life from him. He is powerful as the good shepherd. He has the power of God in himself, but rather of his own accord, by his own loving will, he lays it down for his people. And he has the freedom to take it up again in the resurrection. Now the scene that unfolds in our passage from John takes place on a critical festival in Israel's life. In the Torah, Israel is, told, Israel is told to celebrate three big feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And each of these corresponds to a founding event in the life of Israel. But a fourth festival was added in the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus, Hanukkah, or the festival of dedication. This festival celebrated a fresh inbreaking of the power of God among the people of Israel. For 400 years, there was a famine in the word of God, and the people longed for, for God to show up again. And he did. He showed up powerfully. Because Israel, you know, during the time of Jesus was ruled by pagan nations. And before the Romans, it was the Greeks. And one of these Greek kings, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which is, of course, a very difficult, you know, mouthful, sought to make it easier to rule the Jews by making them assimilate to Greek culture. He discouraged circumcision. He promoted the Greek language. And above all, he allowed for pagan sacrifice in Jerusalem. And he grew increasingly bold in all of this. And on 167 BCE, his soldiers entered the temple and a priest sacrifices a pig, the most unclean animal according to the law, on the altar for burnt offerings. And this is described as an abomination which causes desolation. It caused desolation in the hearts of the people of Israel. It was the lowest point for these people. One Israelite priest, Mattathias ben Yohanan, shows his zeal for the temple and for the law of God by refusing to offer a similar sacrifice when he is commanded. And then he kills the priest who is sent there to offer the sacrifice and the Greek soldier who's there to make sure he does it. So then, of course, after this, he's forced to flee to the desert outside of Jerusalem. And he dies there. And his five sons begin to organize resistance against the Greeks. It is his son Judah Maccabee, or Judah the Hammer, so named because he hammered the, the enemies of Israel who commands these rebel armies. And despite being severely outnumbered, they win an astonishing number of victories against the Greeks. And so three years to the day from when Antiochus profanes the temple, Judah enters and cleanses it and rededicates it. And the Jews saw Judah's unexpected victory as this mighty act of God rescuing his people from the pagans. And they begin to celebrate it with this festival that John names here, the Festival of Dedication. But the problem is, 
This victory was not complete because the Jews are still ruled by pagans. And it's gone from bad to worse. It's no longer just the Greeks, but even worse rulers, even more cruel rulers. The Romans with their crosses and their onerous taxes. It's gone from bad to worse. And so they look, for, they look to God for a completion of this cleansing work. Send us a Messiah, a mighty king, who will destroy the rule of these tyrants, who will be the shepherd who will gather the people of Israel again together out of the, out of the diaspora, out of the exile. Restore the glory of the Lord to the temple. God, send us this king who will be a good shepherd of the sheep. That's what the hearts of the people of Israel are longing for. And this is the background you need to have in order to understand the weight of the question that the Jews who are now gathered in the temple, temple courts are asking Jesus. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. If you're going to do that, let us know now. Jesus responds to them, if you were my sheep, you would know the answer to your question already. I did tell you, he says, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is saying here that what it means to be the Lord God of Israel, to be the great shepherd of the sheep, means something different than what the Israelites are expecting. The Israelites have their idea about what God should do, but Jesus is saying that God can only be known from God. Only God revealed in the first place that he is the good shepherd. And only God revealed in the first place what that title means. And he reveals what that title means in the person and in the actions of the Son of God. Jesus says that he and the Father are one, and that all that the Son does, he does in imitation of the Father. He is making visible in his person and in his actions the character and the heart of the Father, which is to seek and to save the lost, both of Israel and of the nations. Not only does he want to restore his glory to Israel, he wants no one to be lost. Earlier in this passage, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. We want to continue to hear and to respond to the voice of the good shepherd as a parish. We must continuously meditate on the words and the actions of Jesus. We have expectations we have hopes about what we think Jesus ought to do. But we will not know what Jesus wants for us to do unless we listen to his voice, unless we meditate on his words. I have been so encouraged over the past few months with the way that we have responded to these risky invitations that Jesus has given us. But I want him to call us to more. I have such hopes for what the Lord may do through us in Pittsburgh. We're entering this capital campaign season in which we must fix the stones of this building. We know we have to do that. But we know that God is calling us to more. We know that he is calling us to take more risks in relationship. We know that he is calling us to invite many more to know him. We know that he is calling us to be his agents of healing and reconciliation more sacrificially in this city. To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And he will continue to prompt us, his sheep, to follow his voice. 
But how will we follow the voice of the shepherd if we cease to listen? We will only continue to respond to the good shepherd if we continue to listen to his voice as we meditate upon his identity and his glory by by immersing ourselves in the word of God, in worship, in our community groups, in our daily devotions. If we follow his voice and continue to take these risks in relationship, we will see the world transfigured, just like those early Christian bishops I started by talking about. Like the third century theologian Origen, we will come to see that everything is full of angels. So I want to leave us this morning with a challenge to listen. What are the risks that God might want us to take in relationship? What risky kingdom work should ascension as a parish be invested in as a whole? As you listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd, Ask what might be that next invitation that God is giving you to step out in faith. And bring what God has laid upon your heart to these listening sessions we're inviting you to be part of as part of this capital campaign. What more than fixing the stones does ascension need to be about? To be faithful in this dynamic time. To hear the voice of the Good Shepherd as we move forward in our common mission here in Oakland. I set this before you. And I set this before myself because I think it is what the Lord is calling us in this season. How do we listen? How do we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd? Amen.